Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Lisa Campbell. I'm the festival director of the Edinburgh International Television Festival, and we're in our lovely Farringdon offices. I'm here to tell you about Ed Talks, which is our series of short, punchy, inspirational talks by people across the creative industries. So what you're about to hear, media podcast listeners, is four speakers from Ed Talks. We have Simon Stevens, the Tony and Olivier award-winning playwright. We've got June Sarpong, and we've got Karen Blackett, who is the CEO of Mediacom. She was encouraged to be a nurse as a, as a young girl, so we're going to hear about her rise and her views on authenticity and diversity. And we are also going to hear from David Glover, who commissioned Gogglebox. He's head of Specialist Factual at Channel 4, and he's talking about the TV that most inspired him. OK, that's enough from me. See you on the other side with some exciting news about this year's TV festival. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ed Talks in association with UK TV, an event that is uh, the jewel in the Edinburgh Festival crown, or so it says here. <laughs> now, I was going to learn this script, but then I remembered I'm a TV presenter, so I read shit for a living, so I will just read this instead. Um, all avid festival goers will be no strangers to the Ed Talks, uh, and will remember hearing from outstanding speakers, including tennis coach Judy Murray. Uh, news anchor John Snow, space scientist Maggie Adrian-Pocock, and uh, director Gorinda Chadder, to name just a few. However, um, if you're like me and you're a bit of a virgin to this festival, um, welcome. This is the uh, uh, fourth outing. Uh, prepare yourself to be inspired. Now, I don't normally do this stuff, especially for free, but... Um, <laughs> But, but I thought, you know, I've been in the industry for 20 years now. I need a bit of inspiration. We've got some fantastic people looking slightly nervous over there to inspire us. So over the next 75 minutes, what we're going to do is we'll be hearing from four amazing speakers who will each give us uh, a different perspective on the theme of inspiration, okay? Uh, usual Ed Talk style. Each of our speakers will be against the clock, I suppose, in a way, because they've got 12 minutes and only 12 minutes to uh, deliver their inspiration to us. And uh, this year it's slightly different because we've got two golden questions. I will be asking one golden question and you lot will be asking the other. So I'll come back on the stage after they've done the talk. So if you think of anything to ask uh, our, uh, our speakers, then please put your hand up when I come up later and I'll choose one of you uh, to ask the question. So um, speaking for you tonight will be playwright Simon, Simon Stevens, Mediacom chairwoman Karen Blackett and 
Head of Specialist Factual at Channel 4, David Glover. Okay, but kicking us off, I've got an intro for you, June. You'll like this. This is good. This really picks you up. Um, is a woman who is known for energy and intellect, who is as comfortable grilling politicians as she is uh, extracting gossip from A-list stars. It's the effervescent TV presenter and charity campaigner, June Sapon. Please welcome June to the stage. Welcome, June. Thank you, Tim. Can you sort of do my intros everywhere I go? Tim and I go way back and uh, we were <laughs> lamenting about the old times. Those were sort of showing our age as it were. Um, it's an absolute pleasure uh, and an honour to be with you all uh, this evening. Uh, thank you very much to the organisers uh, for inviting me. Um, the theme of inspiration. So on the topic of inspiration, uh, when uh, they first uh, told me that that's what we were going to be talking about this evening. I thought, well, what inspires me? Um, and I thought, well, the thing that inspires me and the, and the sort of issue that I'm most passionate about is how you create uh, a fairer uh, and more equal society. And that being really around the issue of gender uh, equality. Uh, for a number of reasons, um, I am a woman, at least I was last time I checked, you know, <laughs> these things can change, ask Caitlyn Jenner. Um, and, um, and so I am a woman, um, but also I think uh, when you look at the data and, and you uh, look at where we are going as a society, it just makes more sense uh, to have a society where everybody has a shot at becoming uh, their best self. So being as passionate as I am about this issue, uh, about six years ago, uh, I was living in New York at the time, uh, and I co-founded a women's conference. Um, and in that American way, I don't know if the same thing would have happened in this country, but in that American way, we somehow managed to get uh, Ariana Huffington, uh, Donna Karen, uh, and Sarah Brown to, to help us in, in launching this conference. Uh, and as a result, uh, we became this market leader in the States um, and uh, brought it here a few years ago. And my family are from Africa, so we also took it to Africa. One of the things that we are so passionate about, the work that we do at WE, is looking at how you create a framework uh, that creates a society that enables both sexes to be their best. I've been in television for about 20 years now, um, and one of my passions for sure is connecting with people. Um, I was born and raised in East London, but my parents are from Ghana. And one of the um, key elements of Ghanaian culture is mythology and folklore. And this tradition is passed down uh, from generation to generation, and we've all grown up uh, understanding our, our mythology and all the folklores that have governed Ghanaian culture. So there's a fantastic book by uh, Joseph Campbell called The Hero's Journey. And in that book, he looks at all of the world's great mythology. And so there's one central theme, and the theme is a bit like this. So the hero gets called to action. And notice that I say the hero as in a man. It's always a man. Um, and at first, he sort of says no, sounds like too much work, and decides not to do it. Then something catastrophic happens, and he has no choice but to answer the call. So he embarks on the hero heroic journey and comes up against a powerful adversary. At first, he fails, then he finds a mentor and somehow succeeds. He loses, 
a battle, but then eventually finds the strength to win the war. And along the journey, discovers himself and discovers what he's really capable of and returns home a hero. And so in Ghanaian uh, mythology, there is the story of Anansi the spider. And we all grew up with this story. And Anansi starts off as a low spider in the animal kingdom and looks around and decides he wants to somehow rise to the top uh, of, of the kingdom. And so he goes to the sky god and he says to the sky god, um, what is the most valuable possession in our kingdom? And the sky god says our stories. So he says, okay, well, I want to buy them. And the sky god says to them, the stories are not for sale. So he says to them, him, well, how can I get them? So he says, well, you can't, because we've had kings from many other regions come here who've tried to get these stories, and they have failed. So what makes you think that you, a low spider, will succeed? So Anansi says, no, I think I can do it. So the, spy god, the sky god says to him, okay, go on, have, have a shot, see what you can do. So he somehow, I won't go into the whole story, but he cunningly manages to get all the things that the sky god asks for. These are the things that seem impossible. He brings them back, and the sky god is completely flabbergasted, but at the same time very impressed. And as a result, crowns him the king of, of, of the animal kingdom. And so the reason why I reference these Anansi stories is for two reasons. Because there are two key elements within the story that shows why and how when you set this, your mind to something and you create the right framework, anything is possible. There are two elements here that made Anansi's success happen. The first was equal opportunity, because even though the sky god didn't think that Anansi could complete the task, he still gave him the same shot as he had given all of the seemingly more worthy candidates. And secondly, Anansi believed in himself. And I believe that those are the two elements that more or less guarantee greatness, when you have equal opportunity and self-belief. So when we look at those issues, how do we create a society that enables women to have an equal shot as men? If, if we look at all of the, the, the data and we look at the imbalance that we have at the moment, there is so much that we are being robbed of as a society by not empowering our women. In a way, it's almost like driving with one hand. Yes, you can do it, but it's so much safer and better to drive with two. Well, that's unless you're in a drop top. <laughs> I have to find another example. But unless you are in a drop top, it is so much safer and better to drive with two. And I think that when we look at the sum of the work that we've been able to do with WE over the years, we've been able to empower young women who come to our conferences, who network, who don't understand just how capable they are, but we put them through programs that empower them and nurture them and give them the access for them to be able to rise throughout their careers. We've been able to put young women with women such as Ariana, such as Donna, who've then have been able to rise through the ranks of the media industry in the States, as well as the fashion industry too. Now, I recently joined uh, the Ink campaign, and this is a really interesting campaign for a number of reasons. At the moment, the conversation is being dominated by men, but the outcome will actually be decided by women. The two groups that are in play are young women, young women who most of whom have not voted before, and women who are mothers, mainly in the middle of the country, who are torn as to which way to go. 
So these two groups are going to decide Britain's future in Europe. And I believe that if you look at what the outcome will be on the European elections, we can use that as a way of looking at how things are going to move forward because it's women, it's empowering women that will secure our future, not just as a country on our own, but also as a country within the EU. So what I want to say is I truly believe that the economy that is efficient enough to capture the talents of all those that are available to contribute and is capable of utilizing its greatest minds will produce a model that the rest of the world will be desperate to emulate. I'm not an economist, but I'm a feminist and can only imagine the positive impact that this will have on 21st century GDPs, where it's new thinking and ideas rather than the industrial might of the 20th century that will win the day. There's a wonderful quote by Margaret Mead, and she says that, when you, that every time we liberate a woman, we also liberate a man. And what I'm excited to see is a new generation of men who will be liberated to levels that they did not realize were possible for them because for the first time ever, they will be actually playing on a level playing field. Thank you. Thank you, too. Um, very good. Uh, empowering women, I agree with that. Uh, gender well, you have three daughters. Gender equality yeah, is important to me because I've got three daughters. Yeah. So uh, my first golden question, I want to come to you guys there, is um, uh, who's getting it right in terms of an industry, a company, a movement? Who's getting gender equality well, right? I'm actually going to say a country, which is quite random in a sense, uh, is Rwanda. And it's by default. Uh, because of the genocide uh, that happened in Rwanda, as a result of that, they had no choice but to empower their women because there weren't as many men left, unfortunately. Um, so their uh, parliament is 50-50. In fact, it's actually a little bit more. It's something like, I think, 53% female. Um, and a lot of the leadership roles in their industries uh, are uh, equal. And the funny thing, they are the only country that um, was able to, to reach the Millennium Development Goals. Um, and that's because they've had to empower their women. It wasn't through choice, but it's actually working out for them. Do you know I was saving Vietnam when I went there years ago? Really? Yeah, because oh. of that war. All, yeah. the, all the dustmen were dust women. I was always like, oh, what's, oh, going, on what's going on? But all the men had died. Not so that we want a war. war for yeah, is that your solution to this <laughs> no. gender equality? Kill the men off. No, we love then, men. Hey, I'll tell men, you what, it's good. not such a bad idea. So we've got, we, we now need a second golden uh, question off you lot. So if you'd like to raise your hand, if you've got a question for June, don't be shy, please. Raise your hand, someone. There, hey, we've got one. Hey. Yes. Hello. Hi, hello. Was, um, a lot of people say that getting a mentor is a good idea, especially as a woman. Do you think getting a mentor maybe in the same industry or maybe to look to other industries and then maybe how do you go about getting one as well? I think you need both, really. Um, I think you need um, a mentor in your industry that has done whatever it is that you want to do. Um, and then it's good because I think you, you, you seem quite young, hello, and um, your, your generation, um, I think even more so than mine, actually sort of multitasks a lot more. So, you know, you may be in one industry, but in your part, in your spare time, you do something else. Um, so I think uh, it also makes sense to make sure you have a mentor from other industries, but definitely seek relationships with, with people in your industry that have been able to achieve what it is that you want to do. TV's pretty good for gender equality, isn't it? Um, 
I would say at the top, top level, no. In the sort of mid-level, yes, and, and actually in production, for sure. But if you look at all the sort of network heads, the top, top... My boss is a woman, but oh, there you go. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. we love your boss. Yeah, she's good. But I think uh, she's probably the only one, isn't she? I don't know. I think so. Okay, brilliant. Thank yeah. you very much, Thank Jude. You. Probably everyone. Give a round of applause. Uh, thank you, June. Uh, now we're going to welcome our next speaker. Um, we've got four great speakers here. He, he, the next one, he's a Tony and Emmy award-winning playwright who has uh, brought an incredibly successful Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime to the stage, both in the West End and on Broadway. Please welcome Simon Stevens. <laughs> Thanks, thanks very much, Tim. I'm a huge fan of the comedian Richard Herring. I, I like him for many reasons. I like his stand-up, I like his column in the Metro, I like the dignity with which he has dealt with the, his one-time partner Stuart Lee becoming uh, an increasingly celebrated and significant figure in the same field as he works in. I like his podcasts. Richard Herring was at the vanguard of podcasting years ago. He does several podcasts. My favourite is a podcast called the Richard Herring Leicester Square Theatre Podcast, which he, 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 brought, he, he records 16 every year at the, at the Leicester Square Theatre, and in which he interviews the most significant figures in British comedy. A huge range of acts have been on what he calls the Ruhalustapa, uh, Stephen Fry was on there, Eddie Izzard, but then also comedians were at the beginning of their career, uh, on the you know their second year on the second year on the circuit. Uh, his interviews are searching and interrogatory and fascinating, and they're very funny. And I urge you to listen to them. When his interviews run out of steam, he asks what he calls emergency questions. These are particular highlights. They're really good. The emergency questions are really good. Uh, he's made a list of random questions to ask all of his guests at any given time in the interviews. Uh, I want to talk about my second favourite of these Richard Herring emergency <laughs> questions. My favourite, my favourite question is brilliant, and I'll, I'll tell you what it is in passing and then not talk about it. I won't dwell on it, but it's brilliant. His favourite emergency question, my favourite emergency question is, who would you rather date? A man who actually was a six-foot-tall penis dressed <laughs> as a man, or a man who, instead of a penis, had a tiny little man. <laughs> I won't... I'm not going to dwell on that question. I'm just going to let that linger in your imaginations, and I'm going to dwell instead on my second favourite Richard Herring emergency question, which is... And he asks all of his guests, including Eddie Izzard and Stephen Fry, he asks them, where do you get all your crazy ideas from? It's a funny question because it's absurd. Uh, it's absurd because on the surface it's unanswerable. And the qualifier crazy in acknowledging the silliness of the question is beautifully poised. And as a writer I like a beautifully poised qualifier. What makes it a genius question though is that while on the surface it seems absurd the great unanswerable of creative arts. Where do you get your ideas from? Who asks anybody that? In fact, it's the most important question you can ask any artist in any form. You could almost say, and there are people here who interview artists, you could almost say that every other question that you would ask an artist is actually a way of edging towards 
the more direct question, where do you get your crazy ideas from? It's a question, as, and I speak as an artist here, it's a question that artists dread. We dread it, I would suggest, because there's a romance that lingers around the process of making art that I think all of us, to varying degrees, cherish. We like the romantic idea that songs, novels, poems, plays, as the songwriter Shane McGowan once said, exist in the atmosphere, in the ether, and we just have to catch them before anybody else does. It's a compelling idea, this romantic idea, because it's charged with notions of magic and that the notion that the artist is on one level a seer, a visionary who has access to worlds and to ethers that other mere, more, mere mortal people would never have access to. It is also, I would suggest, a specious idea that is as silly as it is reactionary. In rebuttal of the notion of ideas existing in the atmosphere, and to make sense of this important question, and in the hope that one day Richard Herring might make a massive administrative error and invite me on his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have, over the past few years, uh, spent some time thinking about the question he asked. I've spent some time thinking about where I get my crazy ideas from. Over the past 15 years, I've written 26 original stage plays than have them produced in theatres throughout the world. On reflecting upon the genesis of all these plays, it strikes me, however, however, it strikes me, you know, however crazy, or actually, in my case, crushingly mundane, the ideas that underpin the plays might be, they originate from the synthesis of five different types of experience. And I've spent some time excavating and analysing those experiences, and I thought I'd talk to you tonight about the five experiences that lead to my crazy ideas. I think the first type of experience that ideas come from is personal experience. Shit that I have lived through. <laughs> my plays are peppered with characters that grew up in small towns and hankered to leave. They're soaked in alcohol, and the experience of living with alcoholics. I was unusual in my generation of playwrights. People here, probably, it's a television conference, you're not gonna know about theatre, but like 15 years ago, there was a big outburst of British theatre playwriting that coincided with Brit art. None of those playwrights wrote about families. And I was unusual in my generation in putting children on stage and putting marriages on stage and putting parents on stage. And I was unusual because I was a parent and because I was married. So that experience of parenting and of marrying defined my plays. I drew from that experience. My oldest friend came to see one of my early plays in Manchester. Afterwards in the bar over a pint, he looked at me and he said to me, you're mad you are. Which was ironic, because he'd been recently diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and that's actually the truth. You stick your hand. This is your mad you are. You stick your hand in your heart, and you rip it out and throw it on the stage and ask people to judge it. He recognised the extent to which I drew from myself, from my own life, from my own experiences. It's such a familiar thing to those who know me that my eldest son, my 17-year-old, often asks me when I'm going to actually just make something up for once in my life. <laughs> the, uh, the second type of experience I draw from is observed experience. Be careful making friends with writers. <laughs> we are watching you. <laughs> 
Henrik Ibsen, the, the great Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen, once attended a conference of European thinkers at the end of the 19th century. They were discussing the political ideas and the philosophical ideas in the century ahead, and they'd been talking for days in, a, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the 19th century equivalent of a conference centre in Oslo, and he lost patience with all this talk. He slammed his fist down on the table. I was going to slam my fist dramatically on this lectern, but I just thought it was just going to fall over, so I was going to go, <laughs> boom, do that. He slammed his fist down on the table, and he glowered at the people gathered there, and he said to them, tell me the colour of the wallpaper in your room. And they were slightly confused. And he repeated the question, tell me the colour of the wallpaper in your hotel rooms. And they thought, that, you know, Henrik, mate, you've missed the point here. We're talking about the 20th century. We're talking about the ideas ahead. We're talking about the world to come. We're talking about philosophy and art. And he roared at them that they were the ones missing the point. They were missing the point of their jobs. He roared at them, I notice everything. Raymond Carver, who's a much more kind of avuncular and friendly man, said, he said something beautiful. He said, you don't need to be an intellectual to be a writer. You don't need to even be the cleverest kid in your class or the cleverest kid in your street. All you need is the capacity to stand and stare open-mouthed in wonder at the world. In the theatre, we write about humans. It's possible to write a poem about a tree or a song about a cat. It's not possible to write a play about anything other than what it is to be a human being. In this sense, we need to stand and stare open-mouthed in wonder at humanity. We need to notice everything about the people that surround us. I try to, uh, and I try to see the things that I notice and use those things in my plays. The third type of experience I would identify would be researched experience. For me, plays start with what Peter Brook, the inc incredibly important French director Peter Brook, described as a formless hunch. The notion that there is something. We don't know what it is. There's something, perhaps drawn from personal experience or observed experience, that I want to write about. The first thing I do when I get an idea there's something I want to write about is I'll leave it I embark on a lengthy period of mulling. This is when I procrastinate. It's really important. You've got to let the ideas stew. So many ideas are damaged because writers start writing too soon. The mulling period, though, is then followed by what I would describe a research period. This might involve factual reading. It might involve interviewing people who are experts in my field or have lived through experiences I'm fascinated by. It's through this that I've interviewed 28-year-old detectives in South London pubs and 19-year-old prostitutes in theatres in Hamburg. I've lost my place. It's there. It might also involve. It might also involve identifying. <laughs> see, playwrights, you see, you need a script. It's not improvised. It's not improvised. I can't do what you do so beautifully. I can't just talk. I just read a script. You know, <laughs> it's, it might involve identifying uh, artworks that relate to my subject or other plays or films uh, or novels or poems. Other writers, other writers have identified a need for isolation from other people's work when they write. I'm the total opposite of that. I spend months plundering these source materials and making notes on them, scraping ideas from the edges, synthesizing with them, synthesizing them with my lived and observed experiences. The fourth experience is the theatrical experience. I write for actors. 
When I see a scene in what we might, might be called my mind's eye, I don't see fictional made-up characters. I see actors who I want to work with. I also see stages. This is why I take commissions, because when I see a scene, it takes place not in, not in a mimetic other world. It takes place on a stage in an auditorium. I write for audiences. The actuality of theatre architecture in tandem with any given theatre-specific audiences makes me want to write. And the final type of experience would be my experience of my own plays. Each play, to me, feels like a conversation with the last play that I've written. This might be a formal conversation, so a monologue might be followed by like a play with a huge, big cast. A musical might be followed by a two-hander. Or it might be that a conversation in terms of gesture, what I'm trying to do to my audience. So a brutal play about teenage murders, and most of my plays are brutal plays about teen murders. But it might be followed by a kind of romantic love story about a 75-year-old butcher. This makes sense to me. Ted Hughes suggested in his study of Shakespeare that writers don't come up with new ideas every time they write, but that they return to the same obsessions, the same myths each time they write, and they interrogate them anew. It strikes me that an understanding of this crystallises ideas. One of my favourite observations about where we get our crazy ideas from comes from Tom Hanks' movie Big. <laughs> in this film he plays a little boy who's frustrated by a controlling father and wishes that he could wake up one morning and be a grown-up and the next morning he wakes up and he's a grown-up in fact he's a grown-up that has the same body and face of a young Tom Hanks his life takes so many turns and adventures he becomes a brilliant adventurer in a children's toy factory and befriends a female colleague he uh, and 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 one night, one night, he invites her back to his house. She's excited by this idea. She finds him very hot. He looks exactly like a young Tom Hanks, for goodness sake. So she's keen to go. To him, he's just inviting his friend over for a sleepover, and the comedy ensues. As part of their evening together, uh, she asks him where he gets his crazy ideas for toys from. He says the most brilliant thing, he says with a childlike clarity and directness that he thinks of the toys he wishes other people had made up in real life so that he could play with them. And when he notices that they haven't invented them, he invents them himself. I love this idea because it describes exactly what I do. What I don't do, and what Hanks's character doesn't do, is draw plays from the ether because there is no such thing as an ether. There is, in my opinion, no such thing as genius. And if we cling on to the romance of the idea of genius because it flatters us or consoles us, we need to be aware that in that romance there's a sense of exclusivity. And it is a sense of exclusivity that has in its history led us to suggest, for example, that women can't write plays, that black people can't write plays, that working class people can't write plays, that only white middle class men can access the ether. It's not ether, it's hierarchy. And it's one that can be punctured. Ideas come not from inspiration, but from work. And work is accessible to anybody with the inclination and determination, regardless of gender, class, ethnicity or sexuality. Where do I get my crazy ideas from? Well, not from any ether, not from any air that I plucked them from before any other white middle-class man does, but rather from the plays that I've read, the films that I've seen, the theatres that I've been to, the actors I've admired, the music I've heard, the people I've met, the things that I've watched and the life that I've lived. The synthesis of these things lead me to, like Tom Hanks, in big, imagined plays I wish other people had written so I could go and see them. 
and when I notice they haven't, well, then I start writing. Really sorry. I went wow. on and on and on. I just went on. I know it was brilliant. It was like it was like eleven minutes this morning. I'm really sorry. That was brilliant. How inspiring. Who wants to write a play now? Everybody. Come on. Right. Um, two golden questions. First one is. Uh, six foot man who's a penis, or uh, <laughs> no, no. no, a man, a man with a with a with a man instead of a penis, because you can go for yeah. a date with them and nobody else would notice. Surely, yeah. if a six foot man who's yeah. a penis walks in, you went on a date with him, everybody would look, look at that man. He's actually True. just a penis. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not wasting my golden question on that. So um, you're in front of a load of TV people here. Hello, TV um, people. More TV plays. Do you like doing TV plays? Listen, I've had a really hard time with the television industry. It's never worked for me. I found it brutalising and belittling. I found the development process... <laughs> I have. I've found the development process continually humiliating. It's a journey that started with a gesture... It normally starts with a gesture of flattery, somebody telling me how brilliant I am, uh -huh. and then it goes up to rejection. It's a journey of, from, of flattery from rejection every time. What does that mean? The commissioners get involved and everyone... Yeah, the commissioners get involved and then they give you notes and then eventually they don't do it. <laughs> and it, so it normally takes about four years. It took me three weeks to write Curious Incident and it's been produced in 70 different productions throughout the world. It's taken me about five years to write screenplays that have never existed in any life at all. And I find that really... And, it, you know, and, and the thing is, the medium's changing. It's got to change because so many people can make TV programmes on their phones and distribute them on the internet. Unless people catch up with the acceleration of thought of young filmmakers, the medium is going to become outdated. And it's going to actually become more like punk theatre as people are going to be doing it themselves. Yeah. And distributing it on Twitter, distributing it on Tumblr. And it's going to render the Institute irrelevant. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. You're, <laughs> You're supposed to be inspiring us. There's no, no because no the inspiration is that it can be better. Yeah. You know, you can be more alert. You can be more incisive. You can be more. You, you you don't have to give note after note after note. You can just make the work. I've only got one question, but I'll ask you two. Is that yeah. right if I ask him two? Uh, what about reviews? What do you think about reviews? <laughs> I never do, ever read them. Ever. Don't you? No. Never. No. Never. No, I really don't. I, they don't know anybody. Oh, I mean, why? Well, and I've read some television reviews as well. My God, television television critics make theatre critics look like lucid geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're on Twitter. You're on social I am on media. Twitter, yeah. Do you read it? Do I read people do you, tweeting? Do you read, me? Yeah, do you read people tweeting about? It? Do you, have you got thick uh, skin? I don't. Do you... I don't. I won't search for my play. But if people tweet at me, it tends to be quite nice. Actually, I like right. the democracy of Twitter, and I'm not being trolled really, or twelve even, really? I've not been trolled. Yeah. So, yet. <laughs> it could be tonight. The, um, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I listen to people who I think can teach me about my work and can teach me about what, th what my art form can do. And, and it strikes me that increasingly theatre critics can't do that. They're not given the word count or the space. Some of the bloggers can. And that's another, it's, an, you know, it's, like, it's like with the future. You know, it happened in the music industry, didn't it? Ten years ago, the music industry was completely blindsided by the distribution of music and other forms. It can happen in the film media. It's happening in criticism as well. All of a sudden, you've got bloggers who are writing 2,000-word essays that are much more incisive and eloquent than anything a Guardian critic could write. Yeah. And they're the people I would read. They, they teach me. Okay. All right. Uh, question from you lot. Anyone got a question? Come on. Someone's got to have a question. I've talked a lot, maybe. You have talked a lot. <laughs> yeah. Anyone got a question? Oh, look, there's a question there. Hello. Can we get... Wait for the microphone. Wait for the microphone so everyone can hear you. Wait for the microphone. That's it. 
Now give us a song before you start. No, I, don't. I was just going to say, I'm an actor, will you hire me? Yeah, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Opportunist. Yeah. Fantastic. you got to love that in an actor. Round of applause, yeah. Yeah. everyone. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, really Brian. That was really good. Really good. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right, it's time to welcome our, our third uh, inspirational speaker, who's um, uh, an, an innovator who shaped 2015, one of the top 10 influencers in the UK, and a true powerhouse. Are a few of the terms used to describe her. Uh, she's uh, a government advisor and the chairwoman of one of the world's leading media agency. It's Karen Blackett. Thank you. So, um, I want to talk about how we can all make better ads. I also want to talk about how I believe we can all make better programmes. I also want to talk about how I think we could all work for more successful companies and organisations. And I also want to talk about how we can make the population of the UK happier. So, I think it's a win-win-win situation. <laughs> But uh, you won't be surprised that I believe that the secret to all of that lies in authenticity and diversity, because it's the title of my slide. Uh, and I do absolutely believe that that is the, the future and how we can achieve all of that. But the next 12 minutes isn't going to be about me talking about employing a diversity and inclusion officer. That is not what I am saying, although they are fantastic. I want to talk about what we can do as individuals. So, I am going to start with uh, a, a truth that I face every single day working in the advertising industry, which is what I do as my day job. And working in the advertising industry, and this is a truth that we don't like to say out loud very often, but consumers aren't interested. They are not interested in advertising. And this is something that we have known for quite a while, but advancements in technologies have meant that that is even more prevalent. Consumers will try and avoid advertising. So 30 years ago, 
uh, you had uh, people watching almost 100% of the ads which are on television. Now it's more like 20% of the ads actively being viewed on television. And for every piece of technology which we develop as an industry to try and target people more cleverly and better and more fine-tuned, there's a piece of technology which allows our audience to avoid what we are trying to tell them. And this is a truth which is happening in the industry. I also think that one of the reasons why people are trying to avoid advertising is because we started bombarding people with advertising. Again, 30 years ago, people would be targeted with around about 500 ads a day. Today, it's around about 5,000 ads a day that you are bombarded with. Now, I do believe that as well as creativity being one of the core things which will help us target and make sure that people look at advertising and want to consume advertising, I actually do believe that relevancy is really important as well. And I do think that is a factor which we have suffered in my industry, in the advertising industry, that the ads do not reflect multicultural Britain anymore. And whether or not the ads are representative of what's happening in the UK. And I think it's really important that we think about what is happening in the UK because part of the advertising industry and part of the reason why those ads may not be reflective of multicultural society, may not be gender representative, is because of the makeup of the people in the advertising industry. And the makeup of the people in the advertising industry not recognising what is going on in modern Britain and the valuable audiences that we should be building a relationship with. So we have 83% of all purchases are made by women. Pretty important, I would say, to make sure that you have some senior women in quite influential roles if you're going to be targeting those people as consumers. 60% of car purchases are actually made by women. And also 50% of home computers purchases are made by women. If we actually look at grocery shopping, 93% are made by women. If we actually look at holidays, 92% are made by women. And actually, if you look at beauty products, 96% are made by women. <laughs> so it is actually quite important to make sure that we have senior women in my advertising industry. Now, if you get, again, making sure that we are reflecting modern Britain and multicultural Britain, if you look at children in primary and secondary schools now, one in four come from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. Those are future consumers. And if you look at the trend from minority ethnic groups, over the last 10 years we've seen their purchasing power increase tenfold. From round about 32 billion in 2001, in 2011 that purchasing power was about 300 billion. These are valuable future and existing audiences which are part of modern Britain. And if the advertising industry is failing to recognise these audiences, we are failing to actually build these valuable relationships. And I think something similar is actually going on in the TV industry as well. So if we look at some major top performing programmes um, which have performed over the last six years, we have seen a decline in viewing for some of these programmes. 
And that decline in viewing, of course, can be fueled by advances in technology. Of course it is, because people are viewing differently. And any technology development that means that people, it changes consumer behaviour, it will change how people watch TV. Of course it will. But I also have a hypothesis that maybe, just maybe, again, what is happening in the advertising industry in terms of not having people in the industry reflecting modern Britain, the same could be true of the TV industry in terms of TV programming. And again, do we have people as commissioning editors, as DPs, working in the TV industry which reflect modern Britain? And it's incredibly important. Now, if we don't have those people in the industry, are they commissioning the right programmes? Are we creating the right programmes which will appeal? And of course, people are attracted to a programme because of the narrative, because of the story. But people are attracted also because they see themselves in that story. So when I was growing up, I'm a girl of the 70s, growing up in Reading, which was known as Mini Barbados. I distinctly remember programmes such as The Fosters, uh, which was one of Lenny Henry's first acting roles. I also remember a programme called Mixed Blessings because it was a programme which talked about the interracial relationship between a black woman and her white husband and that was something that was happening and being spoken about in that culture at that time. I also really remember The Cosby Show. I'm not sure if I should mention Bill Cosby, <laughs> but I remember The Cosby Show because it was the first time that you saw a middle-class black family where the dad was a doctor, the mum was a lawyer, and that was aspirational for our family. For years, I thought I was related to Trevor MacDonald because <laughs> of the sense of pride that came on in our household when Trevor came on the, the news and he read the news. He was one of us, and he was there making a difference on TV. So I distinctly remember those programmes because I could see a narrative that reflected my reality, and it was something that I was attuned to. And I think being attuned to culture is incredibly important. But there's a common thread. There's a common thread across those programmes, which is as relevant to me as it is to a white counterpart. Desmond's, which I used to watch, a story about a black hairdressers in Peckham, the narrative was about a family wanting their children to do well and wanting the best from that for their children. And it was told from a different perspective. So that was me when I entered the advertising industry in the early 90s. I had failed as my first ambition, which was to be a backup for Pepsi and Shirley, being Pepsi <laughs> as a stand-in, but that was me as I entered the industry in the early 90s. And this was what the industry looked like when I entered in the early 90s. I don't look like any of those people. And the one woman there at the bottom, Christine, probably had more balls than all of the men put together. But that was the only woman leading the sort of advertising industry at the time when I entered. Things have changed and things have got better. If I fast forward 20 years, this is what the industry looks like now. So we now have 30.5% of the industry is being led by women. So great, we've recognised the fact that women have a purchasing power and actually we might have a viewpoint which allows us to target women better. But we could still be doing better when it comes to ethnicity as well. We could still be doing much, much better. So in our industry, in the advertising industry, 
0.1% of the industry comes from a black ethnic minority background, but only 8% of the senior management in the industry comes from a minority background. And we all know each other, so I know Magnus very well. So we are changing, but it could be moving faster and we could be doing better. And again, I think the same is happening for the TV industry. We absolutely are seeing more people from different multicultural backgrounds on our screen in primetime TV. My one ask is to make sure that their cultural background is not ambiguous and also to make sure that they have friends and family which reflect their culture. That it is not one individual surrounded by a sea of white faces, <laughs> that they do actually have friends and families that come from that background. I do think it's really interesting that from British TV, only 1.5% of our British TV comes from BAME directors. And I think that has to change to make sure that we're more inclusive and we can change those viewing figures. But there is a business case. So I talked about how we can make better TV programmes, how we can make better ads. And there is a business case to make sure that we could have organisations which are more successful. Uh, the McKinsey Diversity Matters reports demonstrates that those organisations and companies which are more gender balanced actually outperform those that are less so by 15%. The true is said when it comes from ethnicity as well. Again, those which are more ethnically balanced, is that a word? Uh, they outperform those that are less so by 35%. So there is a clear business case for embracing diversity. But I also talked about making sure that we could all be happier in the UK as well because something really strange is happening in the UK that in order for us to progress we are becoming imposters. So a survey and a study done by Deloitte University identified this term which is covering the process by which you actually suppress one of your identities or a true identity in order to fit in with the mainstream and progress at work and progress in your company. That that can be based on appearance, it could be based on affiliation, it could be based on advocacy, but we are suppressing our true selves. You do not have to be Sigmund Freud to realise that if you're spending your time in your organisation not being your true self, that you're going to be unhappy. 61% of the people surveyed, and this was across all different levels of seniorities, across 10 different industry sectors, admitted to covering. That figure changes to 66% for women, 83% for people that are identified as gay. So there is an awful number of people in this room who are probably covering in order to succeed at work and fit in with what is the mainstream. And I firmly believe that in advertising, the media, and on TV, we are the ones which actually dictate what mainstream is. We are the ones that are determining what the norm is. So we are the ones which are determining whether or not people need to cover based on what they see and what they hear. So what can we do about it? What am I asking you guys to do about it? What am I trying to do about it in my organisation? The first thing is focus on who we hire. So I talk a lot about making sure that I hire an Avengers Assemble of people. So lots of people who are very, very different, all of whom have their own superpower. And they're all superheroes, but they are all incredibly different, but they work together as a team. So I think we need to focus on making sure that we cast our net wide and we hire different people. 
Secondly, to make sure that we absolutely celebrate our differences. Again, I think this is incredibly important to make sure that we don't live up to stereotypes and that we make sure that we have happier people because they are not covering. So making sure that we celebrate difference is really key. And lastly, avoid becoming Jacko is the other thing that I talk about. So if you have your Avengers assemble of people, if you are celebrating differences, it means that you'll surround yourself with people that will tell you the truth. People that will tell you if a programme idea is actually you're playing to a stereotype. People that will tell you if actually having somebody in an ad is actually playing to a stereotype and is actually insulting rather than actually beneficial to the brand. So making sure that we surround ourselves with people that tell us the truth is incredibly important. So Michael Jackson, when he started his solo career, beautiful looking man, by the end of his career, nobody was telling him the truth because everybody depended on him for an income. So making sure we have people that tell the truth. I firmly believe, I really do believe, that if we embrace those differences, that if we hire people that are very different and from diverse backgrounds, that if we absolutely make sure that we tell each other the truth, then just maybe, just maybe, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. <laughs> just maybe the programming team behind it would not have confused Idris Elba with <laughs> Frank Bruno whilst they were both trying to be the first black James Bond. Thank you very much. Brilliant, Karen. <laughs> Fantastic, really good. Um, Two golden questions, as you know. Get thinking, you lot. Come on, I need a good question here. But um, uh, against all lots, a big question this. How did you make it to the top? You haven't got 12 minutes on this, by the way. So. <laughs> um, I, ha I celebrated my differences, absolutely, because I think I have a uniqueness that I could use to contribute to what I do as a day job. So I absolutely went in thinking I had a valid view and a valid opinion, but I absolutely needed cheerleaders behind me. So I surrounded so, myself with cheerleaders. So people in your industry were open to it. It just there wasn't enough people coming forward like you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, because I was quite different to that slide yeah. that I put up, it meant that I was memorable. And I absolutely grabbed and used that opportunity. OK. Uh, second question. Anyone got a question here? Come on, don't be shy. Nobody was responsible for the news at 10, I think. Anybody got a question? Oh, please. There, fantastic. We've got a question. Hello. Hello. Um, if you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Um, part of it's what I've got on screen. So part of it is never, ever work for an organisation where you can't bring yourself to work because I think being able to be yourself is so important. And I know that there's sometimes it's attractive to try and work for the biggest or the most famous or the ones that have done the best work. But if you culturally, if the conditions are right, aren't right, don't work for them. Um, but I would also say one of the pieces of advice that I'd give to my younger self is understand the power of networking and understand the power of actually coming to events like this, making contacts with other people, and networking bo works both ways. Are you hanging out for a drink afterwards? I've got to get back. I've got oh, six-year-olds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they all want to network with you, and you won't let them do it. <laughs> Karen, everyone, a round of applause. Thanks, Karen. Okay. Um, on to our, our final speaker now. Um, he's a man who's always thinking about our viewing 
experience championing series that uh, unveils secrets like inside nature's giants, um, shows that deconstruct like the plane crash, and award-winning series that encourage national conversations and entertain like the magnificent Goggle Box, which I love. Uh, is head of uh, specialist factual at Channel Four, David Glover. <laughs> Um, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about the power of television. Uh, I've worked in television for about 20 years, and most of my time in TV has been working on like, how we can make the program better, or how we can get more people to watch it, or how we can grab the attention, or something like that. But rarely do we kind of get a glimpse of just the power of the medium. Of when you speak to millions of people, like we do every night on TV, that's very powerful. I and mean, rarely do we kind of gauge that. Um, so I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. Well, so I'm going to start with the story of a program I was watching a few years ago called Seven, you know, obviously the famous Seven Up, where they follow people at seven years old and 14 years old. Well, there was a Russian version, and they filmed a Russian seven-year-old, an orphan in a Siberian orphanage, a beautiful boy, striking eyes, and he, he, he's lost his parents. And the, the producer asked him, what, what do you want out of life? What do, you, what do you hope for in life? And he said, a dream of bicycle. I dream of having a bicycle. It's an amazing kind of intense moment. Anyway, I watched the next one, the Russian 14 up, and they, they, they showed him later in life. But the really amazing thing is they went back to that Siberian orphanage, and um, it was an amazing thing. They showed the wide shot of the orphanage. It was just piles of bicycles. And basically, uh, that 7-Up series, Russian 7-Up, had been seen around the world. And literally hundreds of people have thought, Fuck it, I'm going to send him a bicycle. <laughs> and, um, and it's at those moments you suddenly realise the, the kind of the power of the medium. In fact, the, the person that ran the orphanage said they had seven bicycles for every orphan now. <laughs> and it's kind of a, an amazing thing. And so working in TV, we don't think about this. Well, I suppose we sometimes think about it with sort of when Delia Smith, uh, when she did How to Cook an Egg, the egg sales went up by 54 million that week. And she recommended a pan. There's a nice story about her recommending a kind of pan. She just said a throwaway thing saying, this is a very good kind of pan for doing an omelette. And uh, that pan company in Lancashire was about to go out of business. They were sold about a thousand pans a year. And suddenly they sold millions. And so we sort of sometimes register it, but it's almost sort of by accident. So I want to tell you a story about, uh, I've, I've worked on lots of television programs. And uh, I think all of them are great in lots of ways, and you can have soft power. But just recently, last year, I worked on a program where I kind of felt like maybe it was a kind of good use of the power of TV. So I'm going to show you a couple of clips and tell you the story of the program. You may have seen it, but it's still hopefully worth hearing. So basically, um, it's the story of a young man called Johnny Benjamin. Uh, and when he was 20 years old, he was hearing voices in his head, and he didn't know what they meant. And he was actually had very serious mental health problems. But he thought he was the devil, and the devil was telling him to take his own life. And he went to Waterloo Bridge to throw himself off. And he did that during rush hour, actually. The thousands of people who were walking past. And uh, he actually climbed over the ledge, and he was, he was about to throw himself off. When uh, uh, someone stepped out of the rush hour crowd and said, don't do this, and, and talked him down. And, and, sort of, and actually kind of persuaded him that he needed help. And he went and got help. And he basically um, he went and saw a doctor and he realized he needed medication. And he's actually turned his life around incredibly. To the point where, six years later, he decided he wanted to find the guy who saved him and thank him. So he went on breakfast TV. He went on Daybreak or something. And he, uh, he said, I want to start a campaign called Find Mike. I don't know if this guy's name is Mike. I've got a very hazy recollection of him. But I think his name is Mike. 
So he started a hashtag called Find Mike. He went on breakfast TV. And that afternoon, after going on breakfast TV, he went to Waterloo Bridge to hand out flyers to try and find the guy that saved him. And so the first click, there was a documentary made about his process trying to find this guy. There's a sidebar, actually. There's a sort of power of TV that him having appeared on TV, suddenly all these strangers are talking to him. But it also kind of reveals this sort of part that's within all these strangers, that suddenly they do have this capacity for kind of humanity and love, which is very, very moving. Anyway, so he appears on the Daybreak TV show, and he, uh, the hashtag really takes off. In fact, it goes viral around the world. Uh, it, it trends number one in the world for a few days. And it spreads from Canada to New Zealand to all over the world. Unbelievable how a story can sort of capture the world's imagination like that in this modern world. It's about the power of Twitter as well as the power of TV. But uh, amazing thing. Anyway, within a few hours of it going viral, someone got in contact and said, I think I'm the guy that saved you on Waterloo Bridge. And a few hours later, another guy says, I think I'm the person that <laughs> saved you on Waterloo Bridge. And a few hours later, another person says, I think I might be the guy that saved you on Waterloo Bridge. And basically, 38 people came forward saying, I think I'm the guy. And uh, some of them had mental health problems themselves, or fantasists, or whatever. But a lot of them actually had saved people on other bridges. Or a lot of people, some of them had actually saved people on Waterloo Bridge. But none of them were the right guy. And, uh, and so the film sort of, uh, they, they were filming all this process. And it was kind of, he met some of the people. And it sort of became a film about, in a way, some of the things you guys are talking about, of, about mental health and about... Um, for me, it's a, it's a film where it's just every time you can get on TV something about mental illness, it's a good thing to do. Every time you can get something about suicide, it's a good thing to do if you do it in the right way. Um, I'm sure a lot of you in the audience will have been touched by these issues, uh, but basically my brother is, uh, has schizophrenia in the mental hospital, and one of my f colleagues at Channel 4, who I love dearly, took her own life. So it's a very, very sort of personal and intense thing. It just felt good to be able to make this documentary just to put this stuff on the TV. Anyway, um, it looked like it was going to be that kind of a documentary in a way. But incredibly, after it had all given up hope of finding the right guy, uh, Johnny Benjamin checked his email. And uh, he found there was one email from someone who said, I think I'm the guy. And the whole story fitted. His name wasn't Mike. The hashtag was Fine Mike. But his name was Neil, and they filmed um, their meeting. They are now friends, and uh, they actually go around the country and they give talks about mental health and this kind of thing. Um, I suppose we, when we had this story, me and the filmmakers were sort of talking about how can we harness the power of TV a bit to use this story a bit? And it's a particularly interesting case for a couple of reasons, which I just want to explain. One is, you might wonder, why is it on Waterloo Bridge, when he's there about to throw himself off, do thousands and thousands of people walk past? Well, psychologists have a term called bystander apathy. You may have heard of it. The truth is, if you're drowning in a canal or something, you're much better off if there's just one or two people walking past. If there are hundreds of people walking past, the moral responsibility to do something will sort of dissipate. Everyone will kind of feel it's not kind of up to them. Why isn't someone else dealing with it? That's the kind of, it's a flaw in the human condition. It's called bystander apathy. Interestingly, psychology students don't suffer from bystander apathy because they know about it. Now you guys don't either. So the question is, could one sort of maybe use the power of TV to sort of stop people? In a sort of lame attempt, I've tried to put a line of commentary and sort of, well, I got them to put a line of commentary and trying to explain it. The other thing, I kind of wanted to reach out to a couple of million people that watch the show to say, like, if you are suffering from uh, mental health problems, 
you know, this is quite an inspirational story, and you know, suicide maybe isn't the, the way to go. And sort of normally with a TV program, I guess you kind of think that's it, it's a good thing. But a couple of weeks later, Johnny Benjamin got an email, which I want to read you. Hey, Johnny, I've wanted to email you for a while now. I thought it was a stupid idea before now, but my counselor encouraged me to do it, so here I am. I should suppose I should start by letting you know that I suffer from severe depression, anxiousness, have previously self-harmed and thought about suicide on a regular basis. A few months ago, my mood spiraled out of control due to a number of reasons, mainly down to my sexuality and the fact I've never been able to accept the fact that I'm a gay 25-year-old man. This affected every part of my life, relationships, intimacy, my work, how I react to things. I was in trouble at work for calling in sick for weeks at a time. I hadn't told them that leaving my bed and facing the world was too harsh a reality for me to deal with. I was on my way out of the house one evening about a month ago to take an overdose on Clapham Common. I didn't want to do it at home for my housemates to deal with. On my way out that evening, I saw your documentary being watched by my housemates and I got drawn in. Everything about your story resonated with me on a level I did not think anything or anyone could. It stopped me from going outside, and it made me face up to what I am, a 24-year-old guy suffering from depression and struggling to cope. So I guess the point of this email is to say thanks. Thank you for letting me realize that it's okay to admit something is wrong with you, both physically and mentally. It's okay to admit when things get a bit too much, and that it's more than possible to live a healthy life with a mental illness, and that falling off the wagon happens. It's how you cope with it that makes you the person. The morning after, I booked an emergency appointment with my GP that morning to get help. This might sound weird, and it seems utterly bizarre to me when I say it out loud, but due to your sheer braveness in coming forward and telling your story, you completed the circle. You found your mic, and now I've found mine, and that's you. Thank you, because even though I don't know you, even though we've not met, nor do I think we ever will, even though I only know a fraction of your story and you mine, you saved my life that night. You stopped me from jumping off my bridge. Thinking out loud, I bet you get this sort of email all the time from people. I hope you don't think I'm some kind of freak. <laughs> uh, uh, with love and respect always, Ben. And uh, look, here's the thing is that kind of, you know, I don't want to claim that this is much to do with me. It's the, the brilliant filmmakers who made the film. And it's also just like one in a thousand films that I've done that I sort of got this glimpse of the power of television. But I suppose for all of us that work in TV, I think it's sometimes useful to be reminded of the power of the medium on all sorts of levels, just that maybe we might use it better. That's it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Um, uh, as you say, important, powerful TV there. What's the process of that actually happening? Who came up? Was it inspired no. filmmakers, or was it the guy who came up with the idea? Of well, that's interesting. Uh, basically, um, as I said, this is actually one that I didn't commission early on. I got involved as the film was being already made, and they were funded initially by a mental health charity. And I think they were sort of... They kind of, in a weird kind of way, I think that Johnny Benjamin sort of went on the process partly because he wanted to say thank you to that guy, but partly because he was also aware that it might do some good in some way that he didn't know quite how. By, uh, by kind of telling that story and just sort of, uh, you know, being a kind of like a poster boy for, for, for mental health, you know, and showing that it's kind of like, you know, he's kind of 
a normal and cool person. And how long into the development of something like that do you realise it's going to be as important as it is? Well, to be honest, I mean, sort of like, I'm not sure. I suppose, um, well, as soon as I saw the first cut of it, I, I watched the cut of it actually at my desk because they'd made most of it before I got involved. Right. And I was in tears at my desk watching it. So that's quite a good sign. And, uh, and then it's just kind of rolled on. It's one of those things where, as I say, it's, uh, it's, more, it's more just something's just captured the imagination. That story, in a way, forget the Channel 4 documentary, just the, the simple idea of wanting to say thank you yeah. captured the whole world's imagination before I got involved. So it's, kind of, it's one of those things that is... Uh, but it's interesting that they're talking about the power of stories. That, uh, that's a story which is somehow uplifting and extraordinary and kind of a bit Hollywood. And maybe that allows us to do this kind of serious stuff on the side. Mm. Let's move on to this successful second golden question. Uh, has anyone got one out here? I'm just curious really about the um, commissioning process because, I mean, if you look at the um, slides that we saw from Karen about the popular shows, there were things like Britain's Got Talent, um, I don't know, I'm a Celebrity, you know, that's obviously not the type of show that's going to have this type of story that you've just shown there. So for people who might not necessarily be completely in the industry, you know, if you have a story like that that you want to tell, you know, what is the process? How do you get in touch and get someone to realise that, you know, it's something that would be beneficial for people to actually watch? That's a good question. Uh, I, my advice is to try and find uh, some filmmakers or some commissioners or whatever. Just first of all, find the programmes that you think have the right heart and soul. You know, maybe there aren't that many, but if there are some, they're the first people to go to because they might be on your vibe. So what I would do is almost sort of say, kind of like, what is the, you know, is there anything like this that I admire? Or anything on TV that's some sort of beacon of hope? And then I'd really get to know that stuff and say to that filmmaker or that company or that commissioner or whatever it is, hey, I really know that stuff. I think it's great. I've got something a bit like it. And, you know, these people, like me, we're flattered if anyone's interested. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it's sort of like... It, yeah, no, but please do. Seriously, please do. But that's the, that's the whole deal, that, you know, the, the whole raison d'etre of Channel 4 or what I do is to try and be some sort of thing that people can pass through with, with great stories like that. That's what it's about. The truth is we don't do it enough, but we, we, do, we try and do it sometimes. She talked about uh, what Karen said about diversity. You, you're responsible for one of the most diverse shows ever on TV in Gogglebox. Mm. You've got black, gay, straight, uh, old, young, etc., etc. You cross everything in that show. Is it a conscious decision to put someone from all genres in there? Yeah, I mean, basically, I'm totally in sync with what you're saying in terms of it's a, the diversity thing is an unbelievable strength. That it's sort of, you know, that, that slide you showed of like what news was like in the 90s is shocking, you know. But it's also just like the world is richer for those levels, aren't they? And the, the reason that that story has power is partly because of Johnny's mental health and the fact he's battling with it. And if you watch the whole film, he's far more interesting than if he's just some identikit person. And with Gogglebox, definitely, I mean, one of the joys of it is that sometimes. You can be in the kind of, you know, the sort of, you know, Stefan Dom's, you know, bed and breakfast palace or wherever. And it's sort of like they're saying the same things. Sometimes you see that they're yeah. united or sometimes you see they totally disagree. But there's a kind of 
the diversity of that show is part of its magic. But I, I always, as I said to you earlier, I can't take too much credit for that's a show where it's like a hole in one at golf that it's all now we can all the way retrofit on why it's such brilliance but i didn't predict it half of its brilliance not even a tenth of its brilliance but um but yes i, yeah. I remember meeting you and having dinner with you once and the gold box had just started hadn't it and i said to you i love that show it makes me so happy about the country yeah because it's so miserable isn't it and then you start watching all these people and you think they're my friends yeah you know i like them i like them yeah. when was it that you actually thought it is the hole in one because it didn't start off like that did it well so no, it gained speed and went yeah well there's there's a kind of, there was a, again, there's a number of levels to that, but there's sort of a thing I love about it is that there's a kind of truth to it. That so much TV is sort of PR'd out of existence and that everyone has to say the right thing and coach to say the right thing. And I love the fact that Goldbox is a little bit of truth. And there was actually the very first episode, they reviewed a science program I'd done about a meteorite in Russia, where we sent this uh, Rus uh, British scientist off to look for a bit of the meteorite. And, uh, and Christopher and Stephen in the show go, oh, watch this. She's minge deep in snow. <laughs> and, it, and it was sort of like, what? Yeah. Can you say that? What the fuck? You know, and it was sort of strange because it was kind of, but at the moment, as soon as it, that happened, I sort of thought, this is very interestingly weird and sort of truthful. And it's sort of pricking the pomposity of my own shows. In fact, they've decimated every other show I've ever done. <laughs> Whenever they do one of my shows, uh, they always kill it. But I'm kind of, I'm used to that now. They've yet to do me yet, which is uh, well, probably, we probably answer, a blessing. No, don't do it. Don't do it. I don't want to know what they David Glover, everyone. Thank yeah. you. Brilliant. Uh, I'm afraid uh, that's it for tonight. So, big thanks to our sponsors, UK TV. Um, please give another warm, big round of applause. Sorry for all our speakers tonight. So there you have it. That was our Ed Talks. And I look forward to seeing you in August in Edinburgh. Early bird tickets are on sale now. And don't forget to book the festival campers for low price but beautiful accommodation. So, yeah, book that too. So until then, I'm Lisa Campbell. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.